0: text for this morning, page 1881, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. 1. We'll begin reading in verse 12, which we looked at last week. We'll read through verse 15. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is the word of the Lord. As we're kind of in the season of of polling and voting, I think if we took a a poll here this morning, most of us would probably admit that we were a little too taken up with the news this past week. Many of us probably found it uh, rather difficult to focus and and get work done, probably checked uh, the news uh, a few more times throughout each day than we normally do. And that was certainly something that I experienced and so I was uh, interested as I read a review of, of a new book that just came out. And the title of this book is Stop reading the news and because of the particular place where my heart was I was immediately intrigued by the title of this book and the chapter titles I'm reading this review I have not read the book so I'm not giving it an endorsement but reading the review of the book and the chapter titles encapsulate something of the author's case so here are the chapter titles. News is irrelevant, news obscures the big picture, News gets risk assessment all wrong. News is a waste of time. News produces fake fame. News is invented by journalists. News is manipulative. News destroys our peace of mind. Probably all of us have had some or maybe all of those thoughts at certain times, whether or not we're fully convinced of those things. We realize something happens to us when we're constantly taken up with the news. But there are other chapter titles that are less obvious and perhaps more intriguing, News kills creativity. News is outside your circle of competence. News gives us the illusion of empathy. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about James 1, verses 13 through 15 particularly, in this, this battle of inward sinful desires that are seeking to give birth to, to outward sins, I realized that those certainly our struggle- against being addicted to information and addicted to things like the news, that in itself is a a struggle against sin, but it kind of creates a picture uh, in and of itself, an analogy if you will, of the struggle against sin begins as an inward struggle and is seeking to, to be manifested outwardly. We become convinced of this this lie, this great untruth that uh, we need to know everything that is happening all throughout the world and, and because we embrace that lie, that deceit, our hearts are drawn once again to our, our smartphones or the television and we're taken we're distracted and taken away from other things that we probably ought to be doing and that's that's like unto really all of our struggle with sin is that first it's an assault upon the mind we are uh, confronted with a great untruth a great lie that we can be dragged away and convinced of something that is not true and then what happens is believing this great untruth our affections are then pointed towards something other than god and other than jesus christ and when the mind and the affections are working together against that which glorifies god and against that which is true it is there that the battle is most often lost and we see the manifestation of uh, outward sins that has begun in our fallen human hearts and so james is talking about that well Consider that today. What becomes necessary for us to do as we seek to love and glorify our God and Savior is to understand the danger of being dragged away into falsehood, into lies, and then enticed towards sin, our affections inflamed towards sinful things. And we need to seek uh, to take measures to fight against that each day. So here's our our life-transforming reality this morning. Since we have sinful desires that are seeking to produce sin and ultimately death, we must remain convinced of our mission, the mission of our lives, and we must labor to fill our hearts with God-centered affections. Since we have sinful desires seeking to bring about sin and ultimately death in our lives, we must remain convinced Of the truth about our mission, why God created us. And we must labor to fill our lives with God-centered affections. Now underlying all of that, of course, is that both of those things, remaining convinced of the truth, filling our lives with God-centered affections, that happens according to the grace and the power of God. So that underlies everything that we're considering this morning. uh, But let's consider all of these things together. First, the source of our temptation what is the source of our temptations? Where do they come from? Last week we considered verse 12 and we saw that uh, God presents us with trials. Sovereignly brings about trials in our lives. And James teaches us that perseverance is universal in, in Christianity. Uh, all those who are saved according to the grace of God, the mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ, they will persevere. It, may, it will look different in, in all Christians. It will look different and varied in some way. But perseverance is not optional in the Christian life. And God does that by his grace. But Christians endure unto the end. We said that we must lay hold of all that is promised to us by faith. God promises us the crown of life. Eternal blessedness, and He has laid out for us a, a road that we, we must walk, and we must lay hold of all of those promises by faith, and certainly according to His power. This does not make our standing before God conditional. Right? Those of us who trust in Jesus Christ, that's all by God's grace, and that is something that's not reversible. Right? Those who are justified by His grace, that is something that cannot be reversed. But God has ordained a way for his people to persevere and to finish the race. Laying hold of all that he has promised to us. Today, we are considering temptations. And temptations are connected to trials. And this won't come through in our our English translations. But the, the word for trial and temptation is actually the same word in the Greek. It comes from the same word and so it's context That determines uh, the meaning uh, or how we translate that word. And certainly I believe that the English translations have done a good job here of noticing that verse 12 is talking about trials and verses 13 through 15 are talking about temptations. Now what's the difference between those two things? A trial is something that God brings into our lives that puts pressure on our faith. It confronts us with questions. It tests our faith. Kind of the way, think of the way that God brought Abraham, Genesis 22. There was a test of his faith. God commanded him. Uh, To to take up Isaac and to to offer him as a sacrifice. Something that confronts us with questions. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that he's in control? Do you believe that he's still working out his salvation? Do you still believe that Jesus Christ and the gospel are worth it? Uh, uh, That's what a trial is. It confronts us with those questions. A temptation is connected to that because within the context of a trial we are confronted with temptations and a temptation is something that has the power to lure us away from obedience. So you can see how those two things are connected and yet there's a distinction that we need to maintain. Illustrate it with a a situation. So let's say many of us won 't find this hard to imagine we 've seen this sort of all around us, and we 've heard many stories about this let 's say uh, because of various things, probably centrally the the two thousand and twenty lockdown and all of the pandemic stuff let 's say someone has had a hard year, a difficult year financially, and uh, because of that so that 's the trial the trial is a difficult financial situation, and that puts pressure on our faith. Do you continue? to trust in the goodness of God? Do you, do you believe that he still loves you? Do you believe that he has not forsaken you? But within that trial, there's a temptation. Someone is saying, okay, well, I've, I've had this difficult year financially, so now next spring in 2021, I'm going to cheat on my taxes because this, this situation has been brought to me. I feel that I've been treated unfairly. I lost my job. I lost my business. Everything has sort of been falling apart. Throughout this year that God has sovereignly brought into my life. And so I'm going to to cheat on my taxes. So they're facing that temptation. The trial is sort of the overarching situation in their lives. The temptation is to respond to that sinfully. So they're being lured away from obedience to Christ. That's the difference between those two things. And, And James is saying when you're confronted with these temptations. Probably in the context of trials. During hard times, during uh, things that put pressure on our faith, the temptation to sin certainly becomes greater. So when you are confronted with these temptations, don't blame God because God is not tempting you. God is not tempting you. Why is God not tempting you? Well, James affirms for us something about the character of God. How can we be assured That God is not in heaven luring us to sin. And trying to bait us and lure us into doing something that is sinful. James says, God himself cannot be tempted by evil. What does that mean? I believe that James there is actually ultimately referring all the way back to the Garden of Eden. To remind us that, that who was it that was first tempted and lured into sin? Was it God? Or was it Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden who broke the commandment that God gave to them when he said, You may eat freely of all the the trees all throughout the garden, but of this one you may not eat. They were tempted by the craftiness of the serpent, the evil that was outwardly presented to them, and through that sin and death entered the world. So James reminds us something about the character of God and he says be reminded and know for certain and cling to this truth and we all need to cling to this truth that God is not the author of sin. When we look around the world and we see pain, we see suffering, we see rebellion and we see all kinds of things that break our hearts whether it be through sadness or frustration uh, the way that people rebel against our God God is not the author of that. God is not tempted by evil, thus he is not the author and the source of sin in this world. And then James says, he himself tempts no one. So God is not the origin of sin. And then as we said earlier, God is not up in heaven luring people into sin. He's not an administrator of sin. He is not the one working to bring it about in deeper and greater ways in our world. Habakkuk chapter 1 says that God is of purer eyes than to look upon sin. Now we know that God is sovereign over all things and there's mystery in there that we'll never fully grasp, but we need to absolutely cling to this central truth that God is not the author of sin and God is not working in heaven to bring about sin in his people. God is not tempting you. Now James says that God is not the source of our temptations. Rather, the source is at least partially, and what James focuses on here, is our own hearts. That sin is is birthed from deep within us, deep within our hearts. There are external forces that present sin to us and that certainly work to bring about greater sin in our lives. But what James focuses on is our own hearts in this passage. And what we learn is that any uh, inner desire that has sinful action as its end is itself sinful. When we are desiring something that is sinful, that inward desire in and of itself is sinful. This is why when we confess, when we repent, we ought to repent of things that are inward and outward. Outward action and inward sinful desires so to have a for instance a desire for someone who is not your spouse that is itself a sin and we see that teaching all throughout scripture something that's perhaps more pertinent to the church today as or not more pertinent but certainly more lively in current discussions is that to have a sexual desire for someone of the same sex that is itself sinful because it's desiring something that is itself a sin and the church needs to be reminded of that today. A desire to spread gossip about someone else, to uh, malign their name. If you, if you want to do that and you're desiring to, that itself is sinful and is a sin. Greed and envy and covetousness, these inward desires, those are sinful. And we need to understand that and know that. that sometimes we get in our minds that We may be filled with all of these sinful desires. But as long as we don't act on them, we're not sinning. And that's not true. We have to repent and fight the battle of inward desires. Because they themselves are sin. And they are working to be manifested in in greater outward sin. So that's the source of temptation. What about the process of temptation? Well, a good understanding of this passage is going to be rooted in a proper understanding of who we are as spiritual beings. Created in the image of God with an an ability to understand things in a way that that other creatures cannot. We're made as the image of God. Certainly our power for reason, and analytical thinking goes far beyond everything else that God has created. We have an ability to love and to cherish and to treasure, to serve, be devoted to things and ways that go above and beyond other creatures. And we exercise an agency that goes far beyond uh, the rest of God's creation. So when we talk about that, the faculties of the soul, we think of things like the mind, our understanding. We think about the affections or or the heart. We think about the will. You could summarize or, or give a different name to those things, thinking about the head, the heart, and the hands. What do we know? What do we love? What do we choose? Now, historically, Christians have seen a close connection between all of those things. What you know, what you love, what you choose. And in that order. And we understand how that works, particularly when we are, when we are glorifying God through obedience. Even if our obedience is always imperfect and always partial. God fills our mind with his truth by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illumines scripture to us and, and allows us to be convinced of his truth. Because of that truth that we know, the truth seeps down into our hearts and we love and treasure God in new ways. We want to serve him in new, in new ways. We, we are filled with a love and a devotion to him that ignites us to action. So because of what we know, and because of what we love, our whole persons are oriented to choose something which is glorifying to God. What do you know? What do you love? What do you choose? Now sin does that in the opposite way. That sin attacks our minds and seeks to convince us of a lie and seeks to orient our affections away from God and towards something that is itself sinful or even idolatrous. So that our inner man, who we are inside, is completely corrupted and then it works itself outward and is manifested in sinful ways. This is the battle of our hearts, that we must seek by God's grace and his power to fill our minds with his truth, that our hearts would be filled with God-centered affections, that our wills would then follow the head and the heart to be manifested in God-glorifying ways. Of course, it's all by his grace, and that is why the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament epistles, often is filled with these kinds of prayers for the churches. That he was leading and writing to. In Second Thessalonians chapter 1. He said to this end we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good. And every work of faith by his power. What's Paul talking about there? That God would fill their minds with truth. That he would fill their heart with God-centered affections. That their lives would be filled with a desire to glorify God. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians would be enlightened. That they would know, that they would know how great God is and how much he loves them. Then in Ephesians 3, he says, I pray, I bow my knees before the Father that you would stand in awe of the love of God. That you would know its, its height and its depth and its width. That you would know it in all of its glory. This is the way that the battle is fought, the head, the heart, and the hands. The first battleground is, is the mind. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind. That is a truth that of which we need to be convinced. And, and all temptation, as it works inwardly, is, is first and foremost an attempt to draw us away from that understanding. And that's per, that's exactly what what James says, that we would be lured away or, or dragged away. John Owen likens this process to trapping a bird inside of a net. If you were to, to try to throw a net over a bird, be extremely difficult. Proverbs one seventeen says, In vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. A bird sees you coming along and will easily just fly away. But what happens if the bird is blind, if it doesn't see? And when the eyes of our minds are blinded to the truth, then it will not be easy for us to fly away when temptation is working inside of us. And so that first step of the battle is the battle of truth, to know what is our mission to know what is it that is right and what are the things that we should be seeking. And when we forget the mission of our lives, to know and to love God, to glorify him and to serve him and to enjoy him forever, it is there that the watchfulness of our hearts is in danger, where we could very easily fall into error. And from that warped understanding, from the head, then it goes to the heart. Now, this is the principle of sin that's being worked out in our inner man, spiritually. And those of us who know Christ, like I said, we've been forgiven by grace. The dominion of sin no longer reigns and rules over us, as our beloved Heidelberg Catechism reminds us of continually. And yet, the principle of sin continues to work in us. It does not reign over us. We are not to submit to its power but it's at work in us. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because so often the very things I want to do are are the opposite of what I actually do. And I rejoice in the law of God and yet I fail to do it again and again and again. So convinced of untruth and uh, convinced of the lie as temptation and the principle of sin working inside of us convinces us of a lie, it then moves, the battle then moves to the Affections. Our affections are what we treasure, what we love, what we adore. We understand that to be a person who glorifies God, it's not enough just to know things. It's not enough just to know information. Psalm 119 is, of course, uh, perhaps the, the most, the longest, biggest diatribe about the Word of God in all of Scripture. But it's not just that the psalmist would know. The word of God. But that he would delight in it. We find that all throughout Psalm 119. Lead me in the path of your commandments. For I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies. There, the cry is. Make me love what you have called me to do. Make me to see its beauty. That I would rejoice in it. That I may then serve you. Proverbs 8 says, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. It doesn't say, the fear of the Lord is to know what evil is. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. But when our minds are darkened in their understanding, when we believe lies, it's then that our affections can be enticed. And that's what James says. That first we are dragged away, lured away, and secondly we are enticed by that principle of sin. That works inside of us. And it is, it is at this point where sin is most dangerous. If you're convinced of a lie. And then you're rejoicing in the lie. Then you are at your most dangerous point. Second Peter chapter 2. Peter is speaking about the kinds of people. Who are at this point. Convinced of a lie. And loving that which is evil. He says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. This is when sin has its way with a person. Because their minds are darkened, their affections are turned away from the good. There's a sense in which, as this process of temptation is worked out, that Then the temptation returns to the mind to have it be fully convinced of deceit. And this is where we see many of the lies about sin take root. What what does our flesh do? What does Satan do when he presents us with sin? Uh, He makes us, he hides the danger of it from us, right? He hides the hook, he downplays the seriousness. He convinces us that repentance is easy. And our sinful, fallen, and corrupted flesh. Convinces us of the same things, right? Sin lies to you. It lies to us and it tries to convince us fully of deceit. The source of our temptation then is inward. It's not God, it's our corrupted nature. The process of temptation is from the head to the heart to the hands. And then finally, we see in this passage the offspring of temptation, Verse 15 has this very interesting imagery. I did not come up with this idea of grandparent and grandchild. Pastor Mark Jones came up with it and so I'm, I'm taking it from him. But you notice the way that it's worked out, right? Uh, uh, the evil desire gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. And so the grandchild of your evil desire is spiritual death. Now, many people, rightfully so, consider grandchildren as one of the the, the great blessings of later in life. It's an opportunity to to love and bestow uh, special affection without many of the the minute-by-minute occupations that, as a parent, they exercised earlier in life. In many ways, it's sort of the the fruit of of a life well-lived. But here in this imagery... Spiritual death is a grandchild that, that no one would or should want. And so why would we live in such a way to bring about the grandchild of spiritual death? Why would we live in such a way that we are faced with the possibility that spiritual death would come upon us? And so you think about this picture that James is painting for us and the kinds of things that it confronts us with. It confronts us with the question, why would you massage or give audience to these sinful desires that so often reign and rule in your hearts when all they're trying to do is bring about that grandchild of death? Why would you entertain these things why would you not take up arms and fight them in God's grace and God's power because so often our instinct is to say oh well it's as long as i don't act on it it's okay i can i can harbor all of this bitterness and all of this sin and all of this lust and all of this greed and all of this anger and i've perfected the art of keeping it inside of me but what it's seeking to bring out the offspring that outward sin and the offspring of that outward sin is death so what we need to do is to be a parent or a steward of righteousness what we need to be seeking to do is to steward all the things that God has given us by his grace to fight this battle at the beginning so that we might glorify him and live in ways that please him John Owen says this, Would we avoid the conception and birth of sin? Would we turn ourselves away from the road that leads to death? Let us take heed of our affections, which need to be carefully watched if we are to be obedient. Proverbs 4 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard what's going on inside, for from it flow the springs of life. And so first, we need to remind ourselves of the mission. We need to fill our our minds with God's truth. We need to pray that he would reveal the meaning of his word to us. Secondly, we need to keep our affections and labor to fill our hearts with God-centered affections. Once again, John Owen, he says, fix your affections on heavenly things. The things that above are blessed and suitable and worthy of our affections. Think about God himself and his beauty and his glory. The Lord Jesus Christ who is altogether lovely, the chiefest of 10,000. Think about grace and glory, the mysteries revealed in the gospel and the blessedness that is promised to us therein. He goes on to say, if this is where our affections were fixed, what access could sin have? If your heart was filled with God-centered affections, the love of God, the beauty of Christ, the wonders of his grace and his glory, what access could sin have into our hearts? With its fake pleasures, he says, with, with its sugared poisons. He says we would hate its proposals. For what are the vain pleasures of sin in comparison with the eternal weight of glory That is waiting for us. See you can't just. It's not enough. As God calls us to to wage war. Against our sin and our sinfulness. It's not enough just to play defense. You have to go on offense. And to labor by God's grace. To fill your heart. With the affections of himself. And when. You're weary of the battle. When. It seems like there is no. There is no affection that is is coming into your heart, coming into your life. It's then that that Owen and others say, use then the, the, the ultimate Christian trump card. What is it that we can always think about, reflect on, meditate on, and all of us who know God in Christ should at least in some sense be stopped to think and reflect about God and his beauty and his glory. It's the cross of Christ. And so when the battle feels like it's being lost, Owen says, set your mind on the cross. Think about what your Savior did for you. He says, labor therefore to fill your hearts with the cross of Christ. Consider the sorrows he underwent, the curse he bore, the blood he shed, The cries he put forth. The love that was in all his work for you. And what a mystery this creates for us. Meditate on the vileness. The demerit. The punishment of sin as represented in the cross. The blood. The death of Christ. Shall we give an audience. Or seek or go unto that which wounded. Which pierced. Which slew our dear Lord. Fill your mind with the cross of Christ. Fill your mind with the wonder and the glory of the gospel. As we seek to glorify God in this battle against temptation, understanding this principle of sin is working inside of us to draw us away from the truth, to turn our affections, our hearts, towards that which is not worth our love, the fleeting pleasures of sin, the many things that this sin-cursed world would give to us. To warp our very lives. All those things. When when we're fighting that battle. Seek God's grace. His power. To arm you with his truth. And to go on the offensive. To fill your hearts. With the love of Christ. So that there is no room. There is no room to give an audience to these things. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ. That there may be no, no more room in your heart for sin fill your affections with the cross of Christ that there may be no more room in your heart for sin. As you look at such a wondrous and glorious Savior by the power of God, by his grace, by his mercy, as you you learn by the Spirit to love him more and to fill your life more and more with that love of the Savior, the love of God, there will increasingly be less and less room in your heart For sin. And that's where this battle needs to be fought because the grandchild of those sinful desires is spiritual death. So, knowing that, why would we give an audience to these things? Why would we allow our heart to be filled with these desires? So, may God, uh, by His grace, uh, allow us to fight the good fight in these ways and stand in His power and strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for calling us to, to fight the good fight as we think about these things and we think about the, the danger that is before us, the constant fight, the constant battle that we are presented with. We ask that you would allow us to, to fight, to stand in your grace, that we would see the danger that is presented to us as we so often make excuses for our inner desires and the, the, the filth that can fill our, our hearts and, and our spirits. And so we pray that you would allow us to, to, to fight this battle at the start. And to see the, the, the fruit of such things as, as utterly destructive to our lives. We thank you for your promise to sustain us. We thank you that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But may we never turn grace into a license to sin. And so we pray that by your power and by your strength, uh, you would arm us for this battle and that we would uh, seek to give you all of the glory because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.